The English language is forever flowing on, adapting and changing. Changing like a never-ending stream, like a circle in a spiral, like a wheel within a wheel. Or am I in a totally different program about song lyrics of the 1960s? No, I'm not, I promise you, although the 60s is where it all starts for our purposes here. Change, let us remember, is inevitable. Except from a vending machine, of course. But nowhere, I venture to suggest, has the way we use the English language changed more in the past half-century than in our awareness of one particular aspect. Which is our subject today. I give you, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, lads and lasses, lads and ladettes, guys and dolls, guys and guyesses. Oh. Ah, you see, this feigned uncertainty over the appropriate form of address has quite given me away. And you've already guessed, our foray today into the English language takes us into the vexatious subject of sex. <laughs> Deborah Cameron is Rupert Murdoch Professor in Language and Communication at Worcester College, Oxford, interested in sociolinguistics and linguistic anthropology, and has written widely about the relationship of language to sex. Only, it isn't called sex in uh, your kind of polite circles any longer, is it? No, we'd call it gender, being the social condition of being either a man or a woman, or these days increasingly possibly something in between or neither. But uh, yes, gender is the social thing, whereas sex is the biological thing. Right, and that may prove to be an interesting and fruitful thing to talk about a bit later. But firstly, I just wanted to suggest that it's not new to talk about men and women having different discourses, different ways of uh, expressing themselves, is it? No. On the contrary, it's been around for centuries and it's very widespread culturally as well. But is it, I suppose, natural to associate it with the 1960s, this idea of what we now call gender politics, as the, the rise of feminism began to include all kinds of subjects and uh, semiology and the way people dress, the way society treated the different genders, but also the way the different genders speak? Well, that is when the matter of the relationship between language and gender began to be studied in a serious and systematic way, yes, although it had always been of interest also to dialectologists. Well, let's hear some of the reaction to these early feminist insights from a familiar spokesman from the Ministry of Sex Equality. Good evening. I'm from the Ministry of Sex Equality. I'm here tonight to explain the situation man to man. Or as we have to say now, person to person. <laughs> now the main area of change, of course, will be in the language. The man in the street will become the person in the street. Whoever you are, whether man or woman, you will be the person in the street. Incidentally, when I was in the street the other day, I nearly fell down a person hole. So be <laughs> now, certain professions will have their names changed from the chairperson of a large company right down to the humble dust person. Not to be confused, of course, with the famous film star Dustin Hoffperson. Ronnie Barker, in a monologue from more than 20 years ago. Any area which so clearly gives rise to anxieties is a ripe one for comedy. And although it might have been funny to him then, for others it was a more serious matter. Sue McGregor was presenting Radio 4's Woman's Hour through most of the turbulent 70s and 80s, and she remembers how the new forms of acceptable nomenclature were then perceived at the sharp end. It was an issue, and it was even an issue within Woman's Hour itself. There was a bunch of uh, young producers of my sort of age who were very excited by the women's movement as I was and then there were the older producers who were more conservative so there was a sort of tension about whether one said chairman or chairperson or firefighter or 
humankind rather than mankind. All these issues were very prominent by the mid-70s. I'm glad to say that the then editor of Woman's Hour, Wynne Knowles, was a modernist. So we did tend to say chairperson or he or she rather than he for every sort of unknown quantity of humankind. I can remember great battles sometimes with the audience who wrote in letters about using the word Ms, M-S, for Miss or Mrs. And somebody fought a battle with the Home Office to allow women like me to put Ms on their passports rather than Miss or Mrs. So I thought, well, if they fought this battle, I shall use the fruits of it. And I was one of, I think, one of the early people to have Ms on her passport. And then I had family connections still in South Africa. And I used to go back once a year. And I remember immigration. This is under the old apartheid regime, run entirely, of course, by white males who'd never heard of the word chairperson and had just about come across Ms. And I can remember being stopped at Cape Town Immigration. And this man said, what's this on your passport? Ms. M.S.? What's this? Are you one of these women's lubbers? And I said, well, if you like to put it that way, but it just means Miss. He said, are you a terrorist? Do you carry bombs as well? There was that connection in the male mind sometimes between women who were asserting themselves and a real threat to the society that they knew. That threat must have been very palpable when we could no longer take for granted even the familiarities of the language. It wasn't just the awareness that certain words might be unreasonably male-centred, revealing that we'd taken for granted a kind of gender apartheid, the unequal way in which the world was being run generally, but other assumptions about how men and women used language more widely were being questioned. Before the advent of feminism, women were often portrayed as gossipy and catty, as being submissive and deferential, especially to men with whom they were in conversation, also as being more loquacious, more prone to ask more questions, and so on, but all these largely male preconceptions were about to be challenged. Well, I think women do discuss and gossip with each other more than men do. I think that's perfectly true. I think women enjoy talking about people and personalities more than men do, but uh, being catty, I don't, I think men can be much crueler in conversation. Well, I, I don't really like to turn this into a sort of battle of the sexes because, you know, men can be gossipy, women can be factual and the other way around, as we know. And I certainly wasn't conscious of that being leveled as a criticism against the women who spoke together on, on Woman's Hour, not at all. I do think, though, that as interviewers, perhaps there is a difference in the 1970s and the 1980s, there was a, I often on Woman's Hour had a problem with men treating me with some sort of, I wouldn't say disdain, but a certain patronizing um, attitude. And I can remember being called more than once by older men. Uh, I can remember the chairman of the Savoy Group of Hotels calling me my dear all the way through an interview. The question of language being used by men as an instrument to further oppression was one thing. Men using conversation to establish and consolidate status, women using it more as a social activity for its own sake, led then to the thought that men and women maybe used language differently. So differently that the myth was fed that we really couldn't understand each other. When he says... It would take too long to explain. He means he has no idea how it works. When I was little, I was a violent, dangerous kid. He means he was a softie who loved to read comics. And if he says that he likes yoga, he means he has no muscles and is terrible at sports. I miss you. Can we have sex? What's wrong? He means... Does this mean no sex today? 
men could come up with their versions of the same game. She says... It's your decision. She means... The correct decision should be obvious by now. Ever heard... I'm not upset. You know she means... Of course I'm upset, you moron! She says... You're... so manly. But she means you need a shave and you sweat a lot. When she says... We need to talk. She really means she needs to complain. I'm not angry. She is very, very angry. I'll just have the salad. Or, put another way... You order the burger and chips and I'll have half. But the whole premise of the joke, really, isn't that we don't understand each other, but that we understand each other only too well. Although that didn't stop one book from selling millions and millions of copies which purported to explain these supposed differences with a provocatively contentious claim. Men are from Mars, women are from Venus, by Dr. John Gray. Both the Martians and Venusians forgot that they were from different planets and were supposed to be different. And one morning, everything they had learned about their differences was erased from their memory. And since that day, men and women have been in conflict. But the whole business of how men and women use language differently, if we do use it significantly differently at all, was quickly to become a major growth area in departments of philology and semantics and linguistics and sociolinguistics all over the English-speaking world. One of those who engaged early in academic study in the area was Jennifer Coates, Professor of English Language and Linguistics at Roehampton University, whose books on the subject are now standard texts. Early research on language and gender looked at mixed groups and showed how men dominated women in talk. And this meant that women were nearly always presented as weak, as unassertive, and really as oppressed and victims and I wanted to challenge this it seemed to me it's definitely not and everyone knows that's not the truth all of the time and I started recording my own women's group well what it revealed was that first of all women have a lot of fun when they're talking together as friends so there's a lot of laughter and a very good sense of humor though it's often stories against yourself so you tell stories of disasters and that causes everyone to laugh a lot, which is very interesting because men's stories are much more often about heroism and success. So that seems to be quite an interesting gender difference. The thing I particularly got interested in was how we take turns in conversation. And conventionally, people tend to think, I have my turn and then you have your turn. And in fact, that is obviously what happens in the public world. But um, in the private world of informal talk, it seems that women in particular really enjoy a different sort of turn-taking. Men sometimes do it as well, but so I'm not saying it's exclusive to women, but women really like doing what I call a jam session. So they start talking and in no time at all, it's almost as if everyone's talking at once. So they use laughter very cleverly, or I mean, it's not deliberate, but laughter is a way of saying I'm still in here as part of the jamming. Um, so you often get two or three people speaking at once and it's not interruption, it's an overlap that is more like music because people are saying the same thing in different words or repeating each other a few words after each other. And it's extraordinary complex stuff. What matters is what the group is saying, not what 
Jane is saying or Anne is saying, it's what the group comes out with and they work at it together. The researches did apparently show that some, at least, of the old prejudices held some water, although a much more complicated picture soon began to emerge. There are some things that people claimed then, such as um, that men and boys took up more of talking time than women. Well, that is still true, certainly in educational circles. There's a lot of anxiety about the way it's proving very, very difficult to change that statistics that boys use two-thirds of classroom discussion time and teachers try really hard to change it. And the Jennifer Coates wave of fellow sociolinguists began to look a little deeper into the sociology of talking, how the way in which we talk to each other says more about us than the mere meanings of our words. It's clear that when men dominate women in talk, that what men are doing is doing power as well as doing gender. But that brings us to the big question of whether gender actually is here at all, whether we can distinguish between gender and power. So some people are powerful, and they tend to be men, and some people are less powerful, and they tend to be women. And maybe it isn't gender at all. But I think the two things are inescapably tied together. But more recently, there's been a growing interest in looking at women in the professions, because obviously one of the things that's happened with equal opportunities legislation is that more and more women have moved into the professions in law and medicine and all sorts of arenas that where they weren't heard much before and so researchers are looking at does this mean that the way people talk in these arenas has changed because of women being there or does it mean that women have had to change the way they talk to fit in with men's patterns or does it mean that women have a hard time full stop and the findings are mixed but there's a lot of truth that men still dominate one power which some women in some areas do seem to exhibit is the power of innovation in language even if it's just a new passing fad women and young women in particular get with it sometimes before us boys there's a new phenomenon called the high rising terminal or hrt which means that people's voices go up at the end of a, an utterance it's common in America, it's common in New Zealand and Australia, and it's common here. There seems to be some research that girls lead this, so girls do it more than boys. This is the way everyone my age talks. All the people I know, it's like what we, like, do. In Australia, of course, they call it the AQI, the Australian Question Intonation, but you can call it a high-rising terminal. Most people seem to think that it's something to do with neighbours. The researchers who concentrate on this, they're not sure if it's going to go on into middle age. And maybe when people get to 30, they're going to not do it as much. But we don't know yet. Boys do do it as well. So I think that's changing. I think it isn't going to be a gendered thing for much longer. Language and identity are absolutely inextricably mixed together. And I think people do understand that. For example, it's absolutely fascinating when people are bi or trilingual asking them if they feel there's something slightly different when they're in one of their other languages and they often say they are that they're able to express a slightly different aspect of their personality so we see that our idea of ourselves and the language we use to present ourselves to the world is vital there's been a, a growing understanding a much more subtle understanding of what we mean by gender first of all that it's fluid and malleable it's not fixed and that means that any one of us can perform a range of 
masculinities or femininities. So, for example, I could be a conventionally accepted sort of femininity if I talked about making a cake or putting on weight or one of those sorts of conversations that women will have. Or there are times when women completely, especially when they're with their friends in their own homes, they'll say things which completely show a different side of femininity. So I've got a recording where three women friends are talking about children and they end up saying as a group that they don't very much like children. Now one of them's training to be a primary school teacher and two of them are mothers. So that's quite surprising, but it's clearly something they enjoy saying in that moment, even though it's clearly not the whole truth. For men, there's what's known as hegemonic masculinity, which is the heroic, tough, strong, macho type of male that is widely understood to be masculine. But there are lots of other alternative masculinities available to men. The trouble is in schools today that certainly in estate comprehensives, it seems to be very difficult for boys to align themselves with more sensitive kinds of masculinity because there's a very strong ethos of boys have to prove they're real boys. They have to prove they're tough. They have to prove they're cool. It's seen as cool to not want to do schoolwork, to not concentrate in class, to fool around. And the few boys who do try and listen to the teacher or do what they're asked to do are accused of being gay. That's the ultimate insult. You want to be cool, you do not want to be gay. Strange thing to hear from someone who spent most of his boyhood trying to prove the opposite. Language is clearly one of the most important ways in which both men and women present themselves as being the kinds of men and women they want to be thought to be. It's very difficult for us as individuals to compare speaking as a woman and speaking as a man. Most of us are either one thing or the other. But there are, of course, a very few people who do have experience of being both, and they're the members of the transsexual community. Mr. Guri Sandhu is consultant surgeon at Imperial College Healthcare based at Charing Cross Hospital and he probably performs more sex change operations than anyone else in the country because gender reassignment does not mean only surgery on your wobbly bits, it can also involve the vibrati bits as well, the vocal cords. If you look at the cords as a simple stringed instrument, which they're, they're not, but it's a good analogy, if you tension the cords, you raise the pitch, if you increase their bulk, how thick they are, you lower the pitch. And uh, similarly, if you shorten them, you increase the pitch. And of all of them, the one that's become favoured and the one that has the highest success rate in our hands, because I'm the third generation of surgeon doing this surgery at Imperial College, is, is the tensioning procedure. And what we believe also happens is that there's a huge mapping of the larynx in the cerebral cortex. It's as large as the hand. And so there is a lot of proprioceptive information constantly going to the brain from the larynx uh, as a feedback of what is going on. We're giving the person the opportunity to relearn. So we give them a helping hand by tensioning the cords, but we also remap the map of the larynx on the cortex and in combination with speech therapy. This is the trick. The overwhelming majority of the operations are men becoming women. And after the surgery, Mr. Sadhu's patients have their voice therapy provided by Cristela Antoni. I set out to modify the voice as much as possible. So most people who come, for example, if they're males, 
transitioning to females have you know a bog standard male voice it's usually deep um, they have male speech patterns male delivery patterns the choice of language is male and essentially the two big points I work on initially are lifting the pitch and changing the tone of voice because women are far more expressive in the tone of voice than men who tend to a more monotone than females do. So it's, it's increasing the intonation range and the movement of the voice, but also the, the expression and the feeling in the voice. One of the things people become very fixated on is having a very breathy kind of sound like this. And I actually work quite hard to reduce that sound in the voice because a very breathy voice can't get very loud. It also tends to encourage lower pitch, which is the opposite to what I'm trying to achieve with them. And also it can sound quite affected. Um, the other typical things to try to teach the client is that women tend to use words differently. So adjectives are much more prevalent in female speech, descriptive words like, oh, it's really pretty, it was really lovely, um, embellishing things with really, and um, saying things that encourage people to feed back. So, oh, it's lovely outside, isn't it? Um, we tend to be socialised, females, to, to, to encourage people to communicate back. And men are generally better at kind of stating things so it's a oh it's a good day you know that kind of thing not necessarily going for an answer the voice evolves as the person evolves during transition but the psychological adjustment is the most important thing to own the new voice oh well let's now turn back to professor deborah cameron uh, to pull together some of these threads for us these misconceptions about the way men and women use language some of the myths can we go through some of the common assumptions? Do women talk more? No. In ordinary conversation between equals, women and men talk about the same amount, and in formal situations where status is important, it tends to be men who talk more, usually because they are still more likely to outnumber women in the highest status positions. And in the old days, you know, even within my lifetime, women were seen as possibly nags or very, very talkative, gossipy. Yep, exactly, nags, gossips. You can, you know, make collections of proverbs which make this, um, this very clear. Things like, you know, the North Sea will sooner be wanting for water than a woman for a word. Or, uh, many women, many words, many geese, many turds. <laughs> I'm glad to see you smile here because one of the things I have to put is that there's a new, if you like, stereotype, and that is people in your job, your academic uh, field, gender politics, particularly the women in it, might well be characterised as naturally humorless. Well, I certainly don't see the joy and pleasure of sexual difference as it's presently constructed, or not of all of it anyway, but... Um, Yes, I, I think the problem we're dealing with here is massive generalisation, isn't it? In yeah. Looking at every woman as a kind of microcosm of women in general. And one of the things I think that my field of research shows is that there are no such thing as women and men in general. There are only different kinds of women and of men. What about the nature of anyone who's in between, as it were, either in between in their sexual desire, like me, say a gay person, um, and then of course we have transsexuals, and they may have some insight into this as to whether they feel they need to learn to talk or want to talk differently, because there are some transsexuals, of course, who want to be a clichéic woman. Transgendered people tend to fall into two groups. You can't totally generalize about this. But there are those who, um, who want to subvert or, or flout normal expectations about gender. And so their style of, of talking, which for all of us reflects who we want to be seen as, as being, what kind of person we want to be taken as, their style of talking would sort of mix it up. 
would juxtapose incongruous elements, like someone who goes to a, a buffet at a wedding and chooses, you know, sushi and potato salad. Right. Whereas um, there is another group of, of transgendered people who um, are actually much more invested in conventional gender identity than most women-born women or men-born men are. Um, for most of us, gender is a bit of a backdrop to other kinds of identity. You know, they, yes, I'm a woman, but I'm more like Anne Widdicombe than Katie Price, or whatever right. to name two right. rather different <laughs> exemplars of, of femininity. Yes, um, but, you know, for the transgendered person, it may be very important, more important than anything else, to be correctly identified with your chosen gender rather than the one you left behind. Do you see there is such a thing as a, as, as a, as a new kind of language? Can you think of, of writers, for example, or comedians or even or whatever? Who? Well, if you take it that language is um, one of the means we use, one of the means that, that we have most at our disposal for communicating nuances of meaning connected to the, the self, the person, um, it's very well adapted to that because language is an area of human behavior where very, very small differences, anything from how you pronounce a vowel to what you call the smallest room in your house, mm -hmm. can be um, heavily loaded with social meaning. So it's even better than clothes. You know, I can look at someone and think, right, that's a goth girl or that's a city banker. If the person talks to me, there's a whole lot more that I can tell about them. And clearly, you know, within the kind of queer movement, there has been an opening out of these possibilities and you are getting people performing gender in a great range of, of different ways. Um, how far they really are subverting the kind of mainstream understanding of gender is a moot point. Most people are not gender rebels or gender outlaws. You know, it's like with clothes. You may think that what you're doing is presenting a sort of inscrutable, subversive version of, of neither this nor that. But what you're understood as being is, um, you know, a weirdo pervert. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, with language, what yeah. is understood is um, as important as what is done. You know, language is not a performance. You know, performances have audiences and language is actually a very interactive form of, of performance. Mm. The other thing is, and you know, that um, this whole thing about men and women not being able to understand each other, this is a, a thing about essentially heterosexual couples. We're very reliant on our, our spouses, if you like, and that makes us more disappointed when communication isn't perfect, but it never is perfect. None of us truly understands another person because language is not telepathy. It's exactly. what we have instead of telepathy. Exactly. It's always liable to the, go wrong. The difficulty is because it's between a man and a woman, the assumption is, is that, that, that that's the cause of it. Exactly. Um, yeah. And it's yeah. very interesting that the small amount of research that has been done on long-established same-sex couples finds that they report all the same communication yeah. and understanding difficulties. Absolutely. And, and so I, I, that yeah. strongly suggests that it's not about gender, it's about the gap that always exists and always will exist between any two human beings. Well, Professor Cameron and I could go on talking to each other about this for a long time. And whether men and women speak to each other differently or not, what's most important is that we all keep on doing it. Thank you for listening, whether you are male or female, and I wish you a generically neutral Good day. Fry's English Delight was presented by Stephen Fry and produced by Ian Gardhouse. It was a testbed production for BBC Radio 4.